good to see everybody tonight. It's, it's wonderful to be together. I uh, want to thank Brother Nathan for the prayer on my behalf. Uh, we're, we've been going through this book, it seems like, for some time now. And it's been a very heavy book full of a lot of doctrinal uh, concepts that, that sometimes are very difficult. And this is that moment where there's a transition in the book where Paul goes from uh, giving us knowledge and understanding about God to application. And so that's really where we're at. We've gone from chapter 1 to chapter 11. And in that, Paul has told us who humanity is in the sight of God, that we are all wicked, that we have failed to meet God's standards, that because of that, God sent his son to this earth. And through Jesus Christ, we can all have God's mercy. We can all have pardon. We can all be redeemed and justified and have a home in heaven with God. And he's also throughout telling us about those things, also talked to both Jew and Gentile about their place and about their understanding. And, a, and, and he's going to get into some things tonight, I believe, are in direct correlation with that to say, okay, now because you know everything I've just taught you, this is how you ought to act. This is how you ought to behave. And so tonight we're going to talk about a living sacrifice which I've kind of subtitled our reasonable service. We're not going to go back through the letters, uh, through, through the letter rather, through the chapters and do a lot of recap. We're going to take a few verses from chapter 11 here in a moment, but mostly we're going to be just staying in Romans 12 and then finding some scriptures that correlate to that and help us understand what Paul is teaching tonight. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. Everything Paul says after that in this chapter is a reflection of what he says right here in verses 1 and 2. So we want to take a little bit of time and build some things based on these first two verses. And I want to start with this one right here. This is the motivating factor, if, if you will. Because of God's mercy, because you are a recipient of God's mercy... That should motivate you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a body of holiness, a body of acceptance toward God. And he says that is our reasonable service. You should seek and pursue and desire to prove, or that is to test or to discern what the perfect and acceptable will of God is. Why? Because of the mercy of God. So let's back up just for a moment. Let's pick up these last three verses. And I want to pull out one statement, especially in these four verses, uh, and look at it for just a moment. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. He is referring to God's justice, his righteousness, the gospel of Christ. And he says, it's a marvelous thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's deep. It's really deep. How deep is it? It's so deep we couldn't dig it out if we wanted to. And he says this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? And then I want you to notice verse 35 in particular. Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Let's really think about that. This is a rhetorical question. It's a quote from the Old Testament. But let's think about this. 
God owes me nothing. He owes you nothing. Who has put God in their debt? Nobody. God doesn't owe us a single thing. He's not our debtor. We are his debtor. He owes us everything. And thinking about that, thinking about the mercy of God, why would we think that our service to God, our sacrifice to God, would be anything other than reasonable? This interesting word, this word uh, reasonable, it really means logical. It comes from that, the, the Greek word logikos, which is where we get our English word logic. And it's, he's really kind of using this idea of a mathematical equation that if you really do the math, are reasonable, are logical, the conclusive uh, rationale, if you will, knowing God's mercy, knowing who we are, it's just reasonable that we would all present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Let's think about the word living sacrifice for a moment. We're very familiar with sacrifices, aren't we? We read about sacrifices all throughout the scripture, but usually if you talk about sacrifice, you talk about something being put to death. And I guess in a way we could actually apply that here because for us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, it means that we literally have to put the fleshly man to death. So yes, there's a death in that sacrifice, but I want to think about the word living. What does the word living mean? Well, what is living? How do we know something's alive? You might say, well, it's breathing. It's okay. It's also active. It has energy. It has activity. A living sacrifice. How do you know if something's a living sacrifice? Well, he says, a presentation. You know, that was a big part of the Old Testament sacrifices, the presentation. I mean, they had to go through this process and present the sacrifice, present the blood. Where did they present it? On the altar and on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. There was a presentation of sacrifice in the presence of the mercy of God. So you know what he says? Your body, your life needs to be a presentation to God in the presence of his mercy. Holy, acceptable to God, which is just your reasonable service. It's just reasonable. Verse 3, he says this, For I say through the grace given to me that everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt each one of a measure of faith. For as we are many members or have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You know, there's a lot of confusion about what Christianity is. And I want to make certain we understand what Christianity is. Christianity is not an individual religion. It's not a, a, a religion of individuality. And we often think that it is, that, that, that Christianity is just about me and Jesus Christ, or me and God through Jesus Christ, if you will. But that's not Christianity. An individual is not the body of Christ. 
The body is made up of many individuals, and a body is connected to those members, connected to those individuals. We are all a part of a whole, and the part is not the whole. We cannot fulfill the will of God. We cannot present ourselves a living sacrifice if we're dismembered from the body. We're all connected to that body. We cannot sever ourselves from the body and be pleasing to God. But we must present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that's what this chapter is going to outline for us. So he makes this statement that there are many members, that is, there are individual parts of the one body, the body of Christ. But he said those individual parts, they don't all have the same function. And this, this is really closely uh, related to what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians as well, in 1 Corinthians 12 especially, where he talked to them about different functions of the body and how they were envying one another and they were looking at one another in, in a worldly sense by looking at maybe ability or skill or talent or even what God has distributed to them. And they were causing division because of this. And so there's a big part of this that has to do with going back to these chapters where we've looked, looked at where you've got two vastly different cultures coming together in Jew and Gentile. And now you've got all these different parts and they all are so diverse and different. Now they've all come together and they're one solid unit. That's messy. It's very messy. And what often happens when you put a lot of people together with different personalities and even in here we've got different gifts or distribution of gifts from the hand of God, things just get a little messy. And so he says, I don't want anybody to think of themselves in an unrealistic way. We ought to all know our place and know exactly where we are. Well, he's done a real good job throughout this book outlining that, hasn't he? If anybody's going to boast, what are they going to boast in? The grace of God and in Jesus Christ. That's what they're going to boast in. There's no reason to boast about different measures of faith that God has dealt to each one of these members that make up this body. And so he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. That's an important statement. Any ability, any skill, any talent that we have has been given by God for the good of the body of Christ. It's a gift. There's no reason for me to puff myself up against another, to boast myself, or to envy another. If that's the gift that God's given them, we ought to be happy about that because it is a part of the function within the body. So he says, having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it for, for our, in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So let's think about these uh, different divisions of gifts, if you will. There's a diversity of gifts that has been given. Now, prophecy means exactly what we probably would think it means. It means literally a revelation from God. The word itself means a foretelling. So it was it was like we read the old prophecies. What did they do? They foretold, they told things that were to come. And we read in 1 Corinthians 13 that those prophecies were to cease when the word of God was completed, that they were here for a time, they were given in part. Uh, but we may think of prophecy in the same way that 1 Corinthians 14 identifies prophecy, that prophecy is for what purpose? It's for exhortation, it's for comfort, it's for teaching. 
So there's an element of prophecy that still exists today through the scriptures of the word of God. It's not necessarily a miraculous gift that we've been given, but if you notice, these things he mentions, they're not really miraculous gifts. Ministry just means service. You say, well, how is that a gift? I'll tell you, it is a gift. Because not everybody's geared towards service. But there are certain people, they just have a knack for serving other people. It's within their nature. And he says, if you're going to serve, then use it. Serve. Some people are not teachers. And there's no shame in that. Uh, we would make a mistake by taking every person and trying to make them a teacher. James tells us, be not many teachers. Why? Because in many things we offend all. But if you are a teacher, he says, well, then use that teaching for what? To the glory of God and for the edification of the one body that you're a member, a part of. You serve a function within that body. Then there's exhortation. That is encouragement. You know, some people are just natural encouragers. And I don't mean to call him out, but he won't get mad at me if I do, and he'll forgive me if he does. So, Nathan, you're a natural encourager. I, I appreciate that. It's just great to have somebody that is naturally encouraging. I'm not singling out above anybody else. I just I, I think about your lessons, and, and they're, they're more geared that way. You all know I'm, I'm maybe geared a li little bit different direction than encouragement most of the time, but, but it's encouraging. And he says, if you're going to be an encourager, well, guess what? That's a gift from God and use it. Some people are naturally giving. They're very, very generous. Some people are natural leaders. He says, use it. Use your leading. Some people are merciful. Is that a gift? Yes, it is. And it's a part of the function of the body of Christ. It's all about being a part of the body. We're all together. Don't divide ourselves because we have different functions and different gifts. Let's come together and use those things to the glory of God and for the strengthening and unity of the body. So, let's get into how we accomplish those things. How do we present our bodies a living sacrifice? And he starts here. Let love be without hypocrisy. The word in the King James is dissimulation. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. We're going to do some word study tonight. We're not going to do a deep word study. But first I want to just notice this word hypocrisy, and it's the reason I've got a person wearing a mask here, because the literal idea of dissimulation is feigned which means to wear a mask. It's what actors did. It's when they would pretend to be something else. They'd put a mask on. They would veil what their face actually looked like so that you'd see something else. He's, in other words, he's saying this, your love needs to be genuine. It doesn't need to be fake. And he says you need to abhor what is evil. You know what that word abhor means? It means literally hate evil. And he said if something's good, Cling to it. Cling to it. You ever seen a child cling to their mother? Like you pull them away and they pull themselves back. You cling to it. You won't let go. You've, just, you've got a death grip on it, if you will. Take what is good and grab onto it. And if it's evil, we'll shun it, abhor it. 
Stay away from it. Abstain from it. And then he gets back into this idea of love when he says be kindly affectionate to one another. We've talked about this in the past that the word kind actually comes from the word kindred, family. That's what the word means when it says kind. And this Greek word that's translated here, and if I'm correct, I think it's philostorgos, which means a family type love, to have a fraternal affection for one another. We say, well, that kind of sounds redundant if he says have a family like love to one another in brotherly love. It is redundant. But it builds some layers here of our understanding of what we are in the body, that we're not just people who all want the salvation of God, but we've all come together in one body and we're now family. And he says, don't love each other just like your members. Love each other like your family. Families are prone to love one another. They're inclined to love one another. And he says, in honor, giving preference to one another. In honor, that word means to value one another. And I want to talk about this idea of giving preference to one another in just a moment. We'll come back to that. First, I want to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 where a very similar thought uh, is given here when he says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. What does that mean? It means since you have been saved by obeying the truth, you ought to what? Love one another. What kind of love? Sincere. You know what the word sincere is? Same Greek word, anupokritos, which is translated in Romans 12, hypocrisy or dissimulation. Same Greek word. Now, why did both of these apostles feel compelled to say, love each other and do it for real? Don't love each other fake because they know human nature. That sometimes we love, but we don't really love. We may pretend love. And so it's an admonition to us to make certain that our love for each other is genuine, that it's sincere. Then he says, love one another with love one another fervently with a pure heart. You know, sometimes people will love because of what it does for them. You may think, well, that's not real love. Well, it's not, but but it manifests itself like love, even though there's a selfish intention or agenda. And, I think that's what he's getting at here. You love one another and you love one, one another passionately, fervently. And you do that with a pure heart, with pure intentions. Just love one another. Why? Because of who you are to me. You're my family. You're my brother. You're my sister. And families love one another. They love one another sincerely. And there's no, there's no fakeness to it. It's real, genuine love. Romans chapter 12, verses 9, let's get back to this phrase, giving preference to one another. This idea, giving preference, uh, it comes from two words, one meaning lead and the other word that, that means before others, lead before others. So let's think of it this way. If you go open the door for somebody, you open the door and you go like this, you know, come on in after you. That's the idea here, after you. It literally means a yielding to someone else's opinions or interests, and if you think about that, because you honor one another, it's a show of respect is what it is. It's because of the value that I have for you. I show you respect by doing what? By yielding. Notice what James says in James 3.16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. Now, hold on to those three things for a moment. Envy, self-seeking, and confusion. What's the opposite side of that? He says the wisdom that's from above is first pure. That means genuine. Then 
peaceable, gentle. Now look at this word, willing to yield. I believe the King James says easy to be or easily entreated, easily to be entreated. What's that mean? It means that I'm approachable, that we can come and we can have differences. We can talk about those differences and I'm willing to yield. It doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with you about all of our differences. It describes an attitude that is manifest in action though. That there's a goal of peace, a willing to yield out of respect, out of honor. We are willing to interact with each other in a way that shows we honor and love and respect one another. Back to chapter 12. We're going to do these in bunches because they're, they're, they're kind of given in bunches. There's a bunch of these statements that are related. So Romans 12, 11, it says, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word lagging, uh, the kids know what this is. It's when the internet gets spotty and their game goes glitchy and goes real slow. Lagging. That's what the word really means here. And the idea is be haste, uh, use haste when being diligent. And the word diligent here means earnestness or eagerness. So let's think about that. Eager means a strong desire to have or accomplish something. So what's the point? Don't put things off. Be eager to do what? Serve the Lord. There's the word fervent in spirit here. The word fervent in the Greek literally means to be on fire. We sing that song sometimes, light the fire. Why do we sing that song? What's that mean, light the fire? Are we, are we wanting God to light a fire? No. We're talking about give me the fervence, the zeal, the desire to do your will. You ever seen somebody that was on fire for the Lord? You ever seen that? You ever witnessed that? What do we call that? Fervent in spirit. They're just on fire for the Lord. They want to serve the Lord. They want to serve others. They want to do things that are right. Look at Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 in regard to these two things. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. This is somewhat of a grim thought if you really want to think about it. Okay, Because here's what he's saying. Look, if you're going to do something, you're going to use your hands to work and to serve, you do it with all you've got. You be fervent in spirit. Why? Because you're all headed toward the grave. And when you're in the grave, you ain't going to do anything. You're going to do nothing when you get there. You've got a limited amount of time to make an impact to serve. So do it now. Make haste. Don't lag in diligence. Work while you can. We say make hay while the sun shines. Our life is while the sun is shining. And we have an opportunity to serve. And oftentimes we do. We put those things off. And so that's the, the admonition that he's giving us here. Don't lag in diligence, but be fervent in spirit. Serving who? Serving the Lord. We have to remember something. And I don't have this on the screen, but, but you remember what Jesus said when he gave the, the parable there in Matthew chapter 25 about the goats and the sheep. And what did the sheep do? They fed. They clothed. They served, they visited. Who did they visit? Jesus, right? You remember that? You say, well, is that what happened? That's right, that's what happened. Because remember, they were surprised. They said, well, we never saw you sick. We never saw you prick. We never saw you hungry. We didn't do that for you, Jesus. He said, yes, you did. Because when you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When we serve one another, who do we serve? 
we serve the Lord. In fact, we're admonished that same principle in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, he says, do it heartily. Do it with fervence. Be fervent in spirit. As to who? As to the Lord and not to men. Listen, our first priority in life, in every moment of life, in every decision of life, should be what pleases God. Everything we do should be to seek to please God and serve him. Why? Because that's where the reward comes from. You will receive from the Lord the reward of the inheritance. Why? For you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. I want to go to Romans 5. We're going to back up in the book for just a moment because he's already really built on this particular principle that he really summarizes here. It's kind of a reminder of things he'd already said. So back in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? It's the mercies of God. He says, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, the mercies of God, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I want to just pull some stuff out here for a moment. So what did he say in Romans 12? Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and what else? What else did he say? Do you remember? Continuing steadfastly in prayer. We'll get to that in just a second. I want to get, get to this first. Rejoice in hope. Hope does not disappoint. What hope is he talking about? You know, people read that hope does not disappoint, and they may be thinking, well, I have hope for something and be disappointed. <laughs> well, we all have, right? And that's not what he means. He's not saying, look, if you have a desire of looking forward to something, then you won't be disappointed. That's not the point. What is the hope that he's talking about? He's talking about the hope of salvation, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life. And he's saying this, look, when that's your focus and you're joyful in that hope, that's a different kind of hope. Because that's not going to be a hope where you're disappointed. Because that hope is not based on wishes. That hope is based on reality, on fact. And that fact is this, God's promises are sure and steadfast 100% of the time. If you commit your joy your hope, your happiness into the hands of the promises of God, you're not going to be disappointed. That's why we see characters in Scripture that really lived terrible lives were still able to have joy. I believe Paul was able to have joy in his life. And it looked very different from what we often think about joy. It, it wasn't that Paul, you know, was able to go have recreation or, or always had pleasure in life, but I believe Paul had joy in life, but I believe that joy, because he tells us all over the place, that joy was in Jesus Christ. Have you, did you notice here that tribulation produces patience, but in Romans 12 he says being patient in tribulation? It almost sounds like it's backwards, doesn't it? That's because it's a cycle. Not every tribulation that we go through produces patience. Did you know that? 
Just because somebody lives a life of suffering doesn't mean they're patient. Doesn't mean they're going to be patient. The patience comes because of the hope. The patience comes because of the trust. The patience only comes when tribulation happens because of where a heart is, and it's in God. Paul re realized this. He recognizes. He learned this through experience. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 12, where, where Paul is given this thorn in the flesh, and he's begging for God to take it away, and God says, no. I'm not going to take it away because I'm working within you something greater because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, well, then I'll glory in that tribulation. Why? Because that tribulation is producing within me patience and character and hope. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. We're not going to spend a lot of time on distributing to the needs of the saints, but let's look at another verse that he talks about. Because distributing to the needs of the saints is an important phrase. You know, it's one thing when we neglect people in the world. I'm not saying it's right, by the way. We ought to be generous to all. But we should especially be concerned with one another's welfare. Distributing to the needs of the saints. And John writes it this way, whoso has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? We, we read this Sunday, God is a giver, isn't he? He's a merciful God. He's a generous God. That's his love. And he says, how does that love dwell in us if we see someone has needs and we are greedy and we are covetous and we are stingy and we don't share those things with one another. Again, these members are in one body. Well, what does the body do? It takes care. You know what my hands do? They feed my mouth. My hands feed my mouth. If my hands don't feed my mouth, I'm going to be in trouble. We're all a part of one another. Given to hospitality. This is an interesting word as well this one one word here given to it's the same word press in Philippians three fourteen. I press toward the goal what does that word mean it means to pursue something it's not just given to hospitality doesn't just mean that we are hospitable from time to time it means we pursue hospitality that it's something that we're fervent about, if you will. It's something that we're looking for opportunities to do, to be hospitable. Look at Hebrews 13 and 2. This has always been an interesting verse to me. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, I don't know those instances. He doesn't really outline, you know, when that happened. Now, we see examples where, you know, Abraham and Lot, they enter, they were hospitable to angels, but apparently some have done that, not known that people were angels. Well, can angels look like people? Well, yeah, they can. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. You see, that happens today. Well, it kind of seems to indicate that, doesn't it? Would it be disappointing if we knew an angel came to our house and we turned him away? Now, I'll tell you something else that's interesting. This word strangers is actually not in the Greek. It was just an added word coupled with hospitality. The word's just hospitality. Show hospitality. Why? Because you never know, you never know who you might be hospitable to. We ought to be 
as servants of God, as recipients of the mercies of God, we ought to be pursuing opportunities to be hospitable to one another. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Jesus said that like this in Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Bless doesn't just mean to speak good to someone. It also means to speak good about someone. If you look up the Greek to this word bless, that's what it actually says. To speak good about or concerning someone. That's what God's people do. They bless. They don't curse. And we're not even talking about the brethren. We're talking about persecutors. I'll tell you, it's hard to speak good about your persecutors. Someone who's making your life miserable, someone who's antagonizing you, someone who's out to get you, it's hard. But you know what he says? Bless and do not curse. Why? We'll get back to that in just a moment. There's a purpose for this that he's going to come back to later in the chapter. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let's get back to this idea of we are members of one another. We're members. We ought to be so connected with each other that when you're crying, I'm crying. When you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. But you know what we see sometimes? You know what we see in the Bible in 1 Corinthians? Envy and strife and confusion undoes all this. It undoes all of it. When there's anything that's dividing us, you know what we'll do when somebody weeps? Well, that's life. It's their problem. You know what we'll do when somebody's rejoicing over something good? We'll go, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. No, it doesn't matter. If they have an occasion to rejoice, rejoice with them. Be sympathetic. Have empathy for each other. Love one another. Be connected in such a way where your cares are my cares. Your concerns are my concerns. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. He does not say, think all the same things. We're going to get to that in a couple chapters. It would be contradictory for him to say, you all have to agree on every single thing in life. Because in, in chapter 14, he's going to tell us we don't agree on every single thing in life. So what's he mean? Be of the same mind. Notice the words toward one another. And then he qualifies that by saying this. Do not set your mind, your mind, be of the same mind. Don't set your mind on high things. Don't set your mind above others. Set your mind with others. Associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own Opinions. Opinions are a tricky, tricky thing. Because as we've talked about recently, all of our opinions are right in our mind. And if they weren't, we'd get a different opinion that was right. Everybody thinks their opinions are right. And that's very dangerous. We don't put those opinions in their proper place. And those opinions cause you to elevate yourself above somebody else because you have a different opinion than they do. So be of the same mind toward one another. It goes back to this principle that we just talked about, being kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love, in honor, 
showing the way for one another. All right, so we've got five verses that we're going we're gonna to group together. And I'm, I'm going to do something a little weird. We're going to come back and hit this part after we hit all this. And we're going to do that because, we, because this is, this is it, it goes along with this, but it's also its own separate thought. But this goes back to something we just looked at about persecutors, about blessing and about cursing. So the first part is repay no one evil for evil. That's a pretty simple concept. If somebody does evil to you, do not reciprocate that evil with evil. But rather, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. I, now the King James says, provide all things honest in the sight of all men. I'm going I'm to tell you, in our modern understanding of the word honest, it, honest is not the right word here. That word, Greek word, means something that's beautiful or something that's good. And it's not about being honest. That has nothing to do with what we're reading right now. It's not about being honest. It's about doing things that are good, about the way we present ourselves in doing good. And that's the theme of this entire deal is do things that are good in the sight of all men, not things that are evil. So verse 18, if it be possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It's not just about living peaceably with the brethren. That's part of it. But he says you also need to be peaceable with everyone. That's hard. That is hard. But that's what we're called to. You can't live peaceably with all men. I'm not being, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm giving you a truth. You cannot live peaceably with all men. It won't happen. You know this. That's not what we're called to do, to live peaceably with all men. Here's what we're called to do. As much as lies within us, live peaceably with all men. You can't live peaceably with all men, but I'll tell you this, as a child of God, we should never be the cause. We should never be the cause as to why we're not living peaceably with all men. He says, you can't, you can't control what they do. You can't control whether they're evil to you, whether they persecute you, whether they hurt you. You can't control that, but you can control you. And so we are to pursue after things that are peaceable. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Why does Paul use the word beloved? I think he's softening some very strong admonition here. He's reminding them, I love you, okay? I love you. Don't avenge yourselves. Give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. This is another one of those statements that is somewhat bizarre, isn't it? For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. What does that mean? What, what would it feel like if somebody put coals of fire on your head? I don't guess I've ever had that happen. But, I, you know, I'll tell you what I have had happen is I've, I've been welding before and there's been splatter from the welder that comes on your head. And I'll tell you, it does not take you long to get that helmet off of your head and start trying to get that out of your, because it hurts. It's painful. I'll tell you what else is painful. When somebody tries to persecute you and treat you terribly and you do nothing but are good to them, it's painful to them. Not physically, but it shames them. It makes a person ashamed. That's the way to fight evil. 
And, and I'll tell you what that's not. It's not somebody's evil to you go, well, bless your heart. That's not what we're talking about. That's nothing but passive aggressive sarcasm and we all know it. That's not a blessing. He means really, really do good. You do what's right, you do what's good, and they will be ashamed when they do evil. That's how you overcome evil. Not with evil, but with good. So let's expound on that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We would like to silence people by making them feel wrong. He says, you can silence the ignorance of foolish men by just doing what is right. Just do what's right. That's what you're called to do. Not to die on every hill and fight every battle. Not even every intellectual battle. But you are called to do what's good and behave yourself in the right way no matter what happens. A very similar thought later in the chapter. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. What's he getting at? If somebody treats you badly and you don't deserve it. What credit is it when if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable for God. He's saying, look, if you do something that is deserving of a beating, God's not impressed with the beating. He's not impressed with that. He's not even impressed if you take that beating patiently. You know why? Because you deserved it to begin with. But he said, if you do something good, if you do the right thing and you suffer because of that, and when you suffer, you don't repay evil for evil. You seek and pursue peace with that person who is rendering you that evil. You take it patiently. He said, that is a praiseworthy thing in the eyes of God. God looks at that and he goes, that's good. That's good. I'll tell you what other people do. Other people also see it and go, you know, I'm trying really hard. But what they're doing, that's good. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conduct honorable, that's the same idea as what we looked at. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, there it is again, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I'll tell you what would be the best thing if somebody is treating us terribly, if they're evil toward us. Here's the best case scenario. Number one, they see and have no reason to keep up the evil because we are not responding in kind. But the best case scenario is that that person who's evil glorifies God. And I'll tell you what won't glorify God if we act like the world when the world acts like it acts. That, won't, that will convert no one. They want no part of us. In fact, they're waiting for us to blow up and render evil for evil so they can go, ha, you're not a Christian. That's right, because that's not how Christians act, and they're right. But we shouldn't give them a reason to say that. So I want us to think about, this is a list of all the different things we just looked at. This is what we do to present our bodies a living sacrifice. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to love our family in Christ, to be willing to yield, that is, preferring one another in honor we, he wants us to be eager to serve he wants us to be on fire for the lord to be joyful in god's promises to be patient in suffering constantly praying to be generous 
to pursue hospitality, to speak good of others, to be full of sympathy, have a humility of mind, a humility in action, to be an example of only good and be peaceable. I want to ask you a question. If you saw somebody and they did every one of these things and they did a good job, would you be impressed? Would you look at that person and say, you know what, that's extraordinary. That is remarkable. Would we be shocked if we met a person who really embodied all of those things? Probably so. But you know what's tragic? There's nothing extraordinary about a person who lives every one of those things in their life. Nothing extraordinary. And I'll tell you why. Because that's only reasonable. If you weigh all of this against the cross of Jesus Christ, that list is nothing. And I'll tell you, at the end of the day, even if we do all those things, God still owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. I hope the study has been encouraging to you tonight. I hope it will motivate you, and I hope it gives us all a good place to look at and ask ourselves, are we truly appreciating the cross of Jesus Christ and God's mercy? Friends, if you don't know God's mercy and you're not a recipient of it, we want to help you become a recipient of it tonight because God is calling for you to obey him and have your soul purified and make you a part of the body of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and would like that, we want to help you with that. And if you are a member of that body and maybe you're sick, maybe you're having issues, maybe you're having struggles and problems, we want to help you as well. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing.